Number one overall draft pick, league MVP, world champion, president. My guest this episode and her counterparts quite literally altered the course of American history by using their reach and influence to shift political control of the U.S. Senate. She also made history by securing a new CBA for her constituents that may very well be the biggest catalyst to date in the fight to eradicate the gender pay gap. A boardroom badass, a budding businesswoman, and a big-time baller, Neka Ogulmake. She told me about her relationship with Gigi Bryan, what she saw in her, and the role her father Kobe played in supercharging women's basketball. She also shared with me what Kobe revealed to her about her current coach and his former teammate, Derek Fisher. But it was what she told me about the gaps in women mentoring women and what's driving that chasm that really struck a chord. It's no coincidence this episode launches on a Mentoring Monday, which also happens to be International Women's Day, when we celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women around the world. Neka Ogwumake. Welcome to the Sports Mentoring Project. How are you? I'm well, John. Thank you. I appreciate you joining me, taking some time out on the West Coast to chat with me a little about mentoring today. And I wanted to start with, who is your mentor? You know, I have, I would have to say I have several mentors in my life, but someone that really sticks out to me in my professional career is my um, assistant college coach, Kate Pay. If Kate were here right now, what would you say to her? Thank you. <laughs> That's really all I would say. <laughs> <laughs> what was Kate's superpower? Kate has this knack um, for perspective, for opportunity. And she always opened my eyes to where opportunities um, were available that most people don't see. Um, initially. And what would you say your superpower is? I think that my superpower is probably discipline. What do you mean discipline? I compete against myself um, and no one else. And through that, I, I have this attitude of discipline and um, understanding that there's so much growth in the small things and not skipping out on those things, especially when no one's watching. That's a good lesson for all of us. <laughs> Tell me, who are your mentees? Oh, man. <laughs> my mentees. Um, I mean, of course, I'm the oldest of four girls. So my sisters, I would probably have to say. Although they're my mentors, too. Um, and I try my best to be a mentor to younger players that enter the league. Um, and, and so I, you could say that I have a plethora of them, you know, with each year, with each new season and each new player. So I'd have to say those are my mentees a bit. <laughs> we'll get into the sister love in a minute, but I wanted to ask you what qualities make a great mentor? I think a great mentor listens. I think a great mentor is approachable as well. And I think a great mentor tells the truth. And what makes a great mentee? I think all the same qualities as a great mentor. Because mentors can't become mentees. Mentees can't become mentors without being mentees first. And so practicing those qualities as a mentee is what makes you a great mentor as well. 
That's excellent setup for our conversation. I wanted to start off with one of your roles. Uh, you are president of the WNBPA, and you led negotiations for the last CBA. And there were a few pretty massive highlights from that agreement. Significant increases in player pay and benefits, enhanced travel standards, and new maternity and progressive family planning benefits. And those are more than just wins for your mentorship. They were a huge victory to women's sports. So I'll ask you, when, when, when you made that first call after the deal was signed to somebody outside the WNBA, who was your mentee or mentor, who was it? And what was that conversation like? Oh, man, I don't even know. <laughs> you know, to be honest, I was receiving more correspondence than calling out um, to people. But certainly, you know, I spent a lot of my time, even after we kind of sealed that CBA, still talking to my executive committee and it was it was certainly a lot a lot of celebration and just a lot of reminiscing you know when you achieve something great you of course relish in that achievement but um you think about the journey and so it was a lot of reminiscing in that regard and we were laughing and and just so incredibly grateful and celebratory for the moment um and then of course i guess you could say like we called the team you know like our, our union staff and the, the lawyers and the representation that we had and, and the players as well. Getting a lot from the players was really great. So I hope and, everyone was happy about it. <laughs> well, you, you had a lot to celebrate and I, I know it wasn't easy. So in, in the tougher moments along the way, who did you reach out to for advice? I really leaned heavily on the advisement of my executive committee, but also I would say the players, you know, uh, the advice wasn't necessarily that from which we needed an expert opinion. It was just hopefully getting as much input and as much feedback that could be reflected in the collective bargaining agreement that represents the greater body of players that we, that we were really striving for. And so, um, I was getting a lot of advisement from players on an individual level. It wasn't just group texts and group calls. Uh, I made it very known to the players that they can hit me up individually and I will bring it to um, our leadership and figure out how we can make this work for everybody. And it was more than just listening, right? It was listening and responding to what the players were wanted, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. Um, the listening was, it was, it was tough in the beginning because we kind of were entering this new era of player leadership. Um, and so engagement was something that uh, I did not want to compromise on, um, I guess, in my term as a president. So initially, it was even tough to get players to engage in order for us to listen to what they had to say. Um, so we started, we started very plainly. It was about you know, sending emails, sending group chats, sending texts, getting on calls and encouraging people to just read this, review this. And once people got into the habit of that and we had meetings and we were asking for input, um, players had to be held accountable for whatever information they did or did not review um, as it pertained to the input that they could give for us to move forward. So I'd have to say that uh, there were a lot of steps before we were even able to respond that started with player engagement on matters that didn't even concern the collective bargaining agreement, which ultimately led to the um, participation of players as we negotiated or renegotiated. 
One of those matters that really didn't connect to the CBA, but that took center stage this past season was the players in the WNBA dedicated its season to social justice and Black Lives Matter and, and to Breonna Taylor. And that was more than just a gesture during pregame warmups. It was this massive effort of coordinating in the community off the court. Can you describe in your own words what the players were feeling last season and any challenges you faced leading it from the front? Sure. Um, you know, at this this started well before last year. We've had um, our own challenges and obstacles demonstrating um, now five years ago uh, as, as police brutality was front and center um, and it continues to be. So this past year, it was, it was definitely more about continuing that, amplifying our voices and affecting change in a way that we hoped that we could, not that we knew how it would happen. It was certainly something that was not to be left out of the 2020 season as we were nego negotiating what it was going to look like. And so um, we wanted to dedicate our season to say her name and Black Lives Matter. And like you said, not just let it be um, a gesture, you know, we wanted it to be action. And so through initiatives and through having conversations with leaders in their field um, and the partnerships that we were able to forge through Black Lives Matter, through Say Her Name, and through voting in the census. And we were able to really do a lot of educating of ourselves and, and ultimately educating our fans and the communities that they live in. Was there one moment during the course of the season that took you aback? Aback in what way? Was, was there a, a particular moment that you felt a significant connection to what you were doing, the impact right. you were having, and the players in the league's response to some of the social injustices that were facing society? Mm -hmm. Certainly. It was definitely those three days that we um, postponed our games. Um, and not just from the outside looking in, you know, it was three games, three days of no games. But for for us, um, there was a lot of disarray <laughs> in the beginning because players were expressing that they didn't want to play. Games were to be scheduled that day. And we arrived at the gym um, where no one was warming up. People were having discussions about the events of Jacob Blake and what it really meant for us to be in this um, season confined, but then also doing what we could um, to combat that confinement with our voices. And it led to a lot of really great conversations, not just around um, social injustices, but also around our place as women in this world, women in business, women in sport, and us being able to use our platform, which is afforded to us through playing basketball, to be able to send a message that is impactful, but also still resonates with our purpose for that season. So it was, that was certainly the moment that um, I think I want to say for everyone that really jolted everyone and kind of shook everyone and remembered and in helping them remember what we, we came to that season to do. Just over a year ago, uh, the world lost uh, Kobe and Gigi Bryan. And I know Gigi was a big fan of, of you and the Sparks. And she looked up to you, but you just talked about players having their own platform. And she had her platform. What was your relationship with her like? And, and how hard was it for the women's basketball community to lose her? 
yeah, it was incredibly hard. I think I spoke about this like when um, we first got the news, and um, it for me it was it's it's so heartbreaking because we were just getting to know her, you know, and you could see the future of our league in her, and of course her having not just the ultimate role model, but the ultimate male figure in her life that was that's through action alone of course through words as well but through action alone and not just in her but also in her in her siblings empowered women especially women in sport and he understood it and he got it at an early at an early age and in his career and we had the pleasure of celebrating women empowerment in sport the summer before that you know as Gigi came to practices of different teams and her dad brought her to the WNBA All-Star and we were able to chat with Kobe and Gigi on the sideline and you could just see her eyes light up. And so it's still the, it still hasn't registered for me. Uh, and and it's, very, it's very difficult for me to think about because of what we saw she would be and also um, how, how impactful and how intentional Kobe was in enhancing the game for women in sport as well. What was your connection to Kobe? Was he, did he ever offer any mentorship to you? Uh, so not necessarily mentorship, but being a spark, you know, in Championship City, you, you, um, you naturally have those kind of familial connections. So um, we actually were getting to know him even better because our coach was his teammate. And my greatest memory was when we went to go watch the women's um, the women's national soccer team on their on their kind of victory tour, and he was in a box with his all of his daughters, and we were like a box or two um, down the way, and uh, he he found out that we were there, and he was like, oh, you know, at halftime, you guys come come to our box and we can hang. And we were in there for like the entire halftime, I want to say for 30, 45 minutes. And he was just telling us all of these hilarious stories about fish. And (laughs) it was just so amazing. It was definitely a moment that you remember every detail. And also too, you could just feel the spirit of him and his daughters um, and how much he meant to them, how much they meant to him and how much he meant to us really. And, and so I, I would have to say that there were always those moments where we would see him. And because Fish was our coach, we now had this <laughs> interesting connection and we would go back and we would tell Fish some of the stories he would tell us and Fish would try to corroborate it. And I'm just like, you know what, That's that was all you got. Any good ones you, you're willing to share? Uh, I don't know if I can. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe another time. <laughs> well, speaking of fish, Derek Fisher, uh, obviously he's your coach at the Sparks and a teammate of Kobe's. And, you know, looking ahead to the season, there's a chance that fish may have not one, not two, but three Ogwomake sisters <laughs> on the roster. And you talked a little earlier about this relationship you have with your sisters and growing up through basketball and that being the thread that runs through it. But mentoring among sisters, is there a dynamic there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in how we were raised. You know, we were raised with an undertone of excellence, but then also um, with a very unyielding attitude of collaboration. 
and and through that we mentor each other maybe not directly but um through observation and through experience with each other uh, and i will definitely have to say that each one of my sisters serves as a mentor to me in their own unique way um, i don't think that mentorship necessarily is limited to um kind of i guess the age dynamic you know in that way so yeah so you say there's a reciprocal relationship regardless of whether one is older than the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about the, the, a word you use, collaboration. It's something that is absolutely critical in the workplace, but you don't necessarily think about collaboration in that respect on a basketball court. So what do you mean by collaboration? I guess I mean, you know, supporting each other, helping each other. Um, in individual endeavors or endeavors that we all share. Uh, that's always been a part of what we do. Naturally, we did a lot of the same things, but even, um, even providing that support in how someone, if, even if we have the same goals and understanding that everyone's journey is different. And so nurturing each other through everyone's different way of doing things, I think is certainly um, kind of what speaks to that collaborativeness that we've always shared. Want to switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, some of your monikers, Chef Neck, <laughs> Being Nasty, uh, President Necke, Mentor. Which is your favorite and why? So Chef Neck, I mean, man, this is hard. And I would have to say, like, it's not really President Necke, it's more like Prez. That's what most of my constituents call me. And then DJ Nasty is with two N's <laughs> because <laughs> that's how my name is spelled. I probably have to say my favorite moniker might have to be Chef Neck because that's really, that's really where I get creative. You know, I love, I love food. Anyone who knows me knows that um, I will splurge on food. I don't look at the price. I will buy it. I will eat it. Like, and I don't waste my hunger on food that is not good. And so uh, when it comes to um, Chef Neck, it was by necessity that I developed that moniker because I played overseas and I like to eat healthy. I like to explore with how I feel myself and I like to eat healthy. And when I was overseas, it was limited in Russia. I had a taste for something and I wanted to be able to eat that thing. And if I couldn't find it, um, I just decided, okay, let me try and make it. And so I'd have to say that Chef Neck is definitely one that I really value the most because I can share Chef Neck with a lot of people. I wanted to talk a little bit more about your relationship with mentees. And, you know, some of them are formal relationships, I'm sure. Others are more informal. What's the most common piece of advice mentees ask you and how do you respond? Most mentees, I would have to say that when they ask me, it's not necessarily I get one particular question in general, but I always get the, how do you, how can I, how does this happen? And I think it's very important to be um, incredibly intentional about how you answer that because the how is really what gets people stuck. I think that if there's more emphasis to focus on the what, and the how will take care of itself in a lot of ways. But of course, you can't totally ignore the how. And I say this because everyone's how is different. 
there are no two hows that are exactly the alike, um, but you can always provide guidance that lends individuality and authenticity to that person's how, you know? And so I think that's probably the question that I get the most. And I try to be very careful about how I answer that because I don't ever want to give advice to someone that mimics my own journey because they're going to get a different result. Just because you do something the way someone else does it doesn't mean you're gonna get the same result. But then at the same time too, um, reminding them that you can get similar results if you follow it in a way that suits you and suits your narrative. So that's the best way I can answer that. <laughs> you can't fault them, right? We, I mean, we, we all, uh, even me and you and I are from different generations, but there's this instant gratification that we want to know how exactly how and follow this exact path. And how do I get into Stanford and play basketball? How do I break into the NBA? How, how, how? And what you're saying is I want to be a college athlete. I want to be a leader in women's sports. I want to take an interest in the business side of sports. Right. Is it really the, the questions that they're asking you? Or are you trying to sort of reframe where their focus is? Basically, exactly. You said that perfectly. Definitely reframe their focus because there's still habits that many successful people have that they all share. And so within those habits, you have to figure out how it works for you. But there's certain things that you just can't argue against that can get you to where you feel you want to go. You can say, like you said, I want to play basketball at Stanford, or you can say, I want to be a college, a collegiate athlete at the highest level, you know? And then naturally what you focus on to get there, it may lead you to Stanford, you know? And, and, and providing that type of mentorship is important because you can't project your own experience on mentees, but you can still balance how you got to where you are, where you, where you are right now to help, I guess, complement their own journey as well. In other words, it's not always a straight line, right? Oh no, it's never a straight line for no, for no, even for someone who had it easy, it's never a straight line. And so you think about the line that you draw through your adolescence, your college career, your pro career, your role as prez <laughs> with, the, with the PA, where does that line end? Where does it end after the playing career is over? I don't think the line ends. I think that I, I just, I, I try my best to move with intention and authenticity um, and align myself with what is important to me, with what values that I, that I have on, on the world and um, in my relationships. And the line will, t the line will flow where it needs to go. Um, but I do feel as though that along this line, I've discovered that sports, women's empowerment, and cultural competence, and social change, and wellness are all things that I've discovered are in my niche. And so I'm hoping that what I do once basketball is over revolves around any one, two, three, four of those things. And along the way, I'm sure I'll discover some more. We're coming up on the 49th anniversary of Title IX, which was successfully born out of a great debate and speaking up and speaking out. And today, there's a debate over who can monetize their name, image, and likeness in college sports. You left school before name, name image, and likeness became at the forefront of our consciousness. But what advice do you have for today's student-athletes? 
Yeah, I think that it's important for student athletes to speak up for their value and their worth. You know, I didn't grow up in a time where this was even in conversation. And I'm glad that it is, despite how long rumblings of it have been kind of bubbling. But I do think that it's important for student athletes to speak up about this, especially if it's incredibly important to them, because uh, ultimately the change won't happen if they don't speak up. It'll take a level of acknowledgement and accountability um, of those who have the power uh, to change the, the conversation around likeness of student athletes. It's, it's a very delicate subject because of how far we've come and our renewed perspective on capitalizing on sports. And quite frankly, that perspective has grown a lot in such little time. I'm about nine, 10 years out of school now, and this wasn't even a figment of anyone's imagination. And, and I think that it's important for people to bring this up, especially as we see how players are having to play in the world that we're living in now through a pandemic. There's added layers of things that are out of our control that contribute to um, the challenges that student athletes face that are both unforeseen and planned. And so I think it's, 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 a, major, it's a major cause for conversation. You spoke to Trevor Noah about your legacy. So two parts to this. One is, how would you like your legacy to be defined? And which of your mentees do you expect to pick up the mantle? <laughs> Um, I, it's difficult for me to talk about legacy because it's not like a goal, you know, legacy reveals itself and you can't really talk about a legacy while it's happening. Uh, but I do know that I hope to be, um, remembered as someone who was great and made others great. I want to be remembered as a contagion of greatness and of resilience. And so with that, I think that it would be unfair <laughs> to designate the passing of the torch to any mentee, really. You know, I think everyone has their own path, as I said before. But, you know, I think a lot of legacies that we see in this world share similarities that can certainly cross boundaries. So we'll see. We'll see what the legacy ends up being like and um, if it continues on. You said you're passionate about, quote, educating women on how to empower other women. Mm -hmm. Is there a gap in mentoring among women? Uh, yeah, I think that there's several gaps. Um, I mean, you have the natural gap of um, inequity, you know, between women and men. And then in, in women, in the group of women, in the pool of women now, because there is inequity, I guess there's this perception, I don't want to say perception, because it, it has been true for a long time, that there's a limited amount of space for the women that are available for whatever equity they can grab at. And so then within that, now, now you get into a competitive nature, you know, and instead of looking at each other as allies, you look at each other as adversaries. And so now within that, the 
adversarial kind of perception comes with, okay, black women, white women, Latin women, Asian women, trans women, you know, it's, it's just goes on and on and on. And that leads to not prioritizing mentorship and really just kind of crabs in a barrel. But I do think that as we, as we understand the way equity and equality can, can move, it can't move without everyone linking arms and demanding their value and their worth um, in the same way, um, at least initially, and making it known, putting it on front for people to see, and thus hopefully creating that change, especially for those who, who are in seats of power to be able to do so. And that's interesting. I never thought about it that way, that there's competition for opportunity. And a lot of it is among women. And breaking this cycle and putting that priority on mentoring. But that doesn't sound very easy. How do you do that? I mean, what, what is it that you can do to break that cycle? I mean, it's quite simple in a lot of ways. But just making space for each other. You know, but there's a lot of fear associated with that, fear of loss. (laughs) Even when people talk about sharing, especially in the world that we live in, sharing implies breaking a piece away from your whole. And so if people understand that that's not what it means, having more power means empowering other people. You know, you're limiting the lengths by which you can go if you don't, if, if it's only you that's on top. And understanding that um, at all levels is very important. And it's, it's hard, like you said, but you have to kind of reframe your perspective because at the end of the day, the person at the bottom, if they rise, everyone above them rises as well. And so we have to understand the logic in that and really contribute to the betterment of everyone, but most especially those with less. You are very much a public figure. You live in the city of angels. You're a professional athlete and your role with the WNBPA is pretty high profile and the media is covering ostensibly your every move. So now I'm going to put the pen in your hands. It's 40 years down the road and uh, NECA's hanging it up. She's going to go play golf or spend time with her family. The pen is now in your hands. Write the headline in the New York Times for the story that recaps your career and your life. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> oh, the story that recaps my career. I'll just say she believed she could, so she did. That's what I'm going to, and that's not, that's not my quote. That's certainly a quote that exists out there. So that's probably the headline for me i don't know if there ever will be but that's the best i can give you right now (laughs) (laughs) so what's next for you after playing oh i'm not thinking about that i'm thinking about playing (laughs) i'm thinking about playing i'm thinking about being prez i'm thinking about chef neck and dj nasty (laughs) i um i'm not ignorant to the fact that i won't play forever Um, But right now I'm really trying to focus on being the best that I can be on the court and fostering relationships and experiences that can uh, build the foundation for what I do after, which I hope is a leadership role in in women's sports. And that would be 
a way for you to make a huge impact uh, above and beyond the impact you're already making, not just on the WNBA, not just on women's sports, but on all sports and on all types of people from different backgrounds. And it was a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. And I thank you so much for being so generous and kind with your time. And I wish you only success in this upcoming season. Thank you, John. I had a great time. So nice speaking with you.